As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. Understand, defend, and share your faith with confidence. This is Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic. I'm Ruth Jackson, and before we hear from today's guest, just a quick reminder to visit premierunbelievable.com for more shows, articles, and resources. And if you register or sign up for our newsletter there, you can choose from a variety of free ebooks. But now for today's show. I am delighted to be joined by Dr. Vince Vitali, who's an apologist and an author whose PhD research involved developing a new response to the problem of evil. He outlined some of his thinking on the topic of suffering and evil in his book, Why Suffering? and also in his academic publication, Non-Identity Theodicy, A Grace-Based Response to the Problem of Evil. And excitingly, Vince is also one of the new guest hosts for Premier Unbelievable. Vince, I'm so excited to have you on today. I know, it's so great to be here, Ruth. It's so great to be working with you. So thank you for having me. Oh, this is so fun. It's like I'm just hanging with an old friend. It's not like we're actually doing an interview. (laughs) That's right. That's right. Well, Vince, we're going to be looking specifically at some of your research around the problem of evil in a later podcast. But because you're one of the new guest hosts of Premier Unbelievable, I guess I just wanted to kind of delve into your life just a little bit so that we can get to know you better. Like, who is Vince Vitali? And why should we be listening to him? No. Um, oh. and, yeah. <laughs> no pressure. Um, right, and, right. and I know <laughs> I know that one of the reasons um, Justin Briley was so popular and, you know, both I and you have said it in, in various ways over the years, why he was so popular as the host of the show was his kind of his even handedness and the way that he gave such a fair hearing to all of his guests, regardless of their religious persuasion. And I, and I know that he, you know, the atheists felt as much listened to as the Christians, even though Justin himself was a Christian. And I know that that's something that you're really keen to do as well. Um, and I guess one of the things we're going to be talking about is is your kind of move from scepticism to Christianity. And I mean, do you think your background in this area as a kind of former sceptic will help with you being able to do this? I hope so. I hope so. You know, I find in conversation with people that uh, it does help. Uh, you know, it helps that I haven't just thought about some of the arguments that people are wrestling through, but I've felt them. Uh, I've wrestled through many of them myself in that journey from skepticism to Christianity. And I think I think that helps to give to give things a fair hearing. I mean, I do. I totally agree with you. I love the way that Justin had that even handedness. Uh, I think it speaks to confidence in in the faith, in his own faith. You know, uh, I think it's a good witness. If I had to sort of like stack the deck in God's favor in, in order for, 
you know, him to be able to shine through a conversation, uh, that, that wouldn't really be the God that I say that I believe. So I just think it's totally appropriate to treat everyone with respect, every viewpoint with respect, not be afraid or think we need to in some way uh, manipulate things in God's favor. He's in control. Let's all pursue truth and let's see what the answer to the deepest questions of life are. Well, let's dive into your life a little bit. And it feels like, you know, a very good place to start is right at the beginning. So what was your life like growing up? You you weren't a Christian growing up. So do you want to just share a little bit about what it was like growing up as Vince Vitale? Oh, boy. Well, OK. We, we, <laughs> Give us this is a concise a podcast, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was... Uh, I mean, in some ways, it was a fantastic childhood. Just like so much time outdoors and playing, I feel like I was sort of an an idealist, you know, and had these had these big dreams. You know, I was uh, I think I was kind of one of those people who uh, I remember standing in the backyard one time and thinking, if I close my eyes and I just think hard enough, you know, like maybe I'll like find myself kind of floating off the ground. <laughs> I remember I remember that experience <laughs> as a young kid, just thinking like anything was was possible. But I think over time, sort of like the harsh realities of life you know, begin to chip away um, mm. at that. And then I probably became much more of a realist and then much more of a of a cynic as kind of life went on. But, um, you know, grew up in a, in a very loving home, uh, not a Christian home. We were sort of culturally Catholic. It was kind of part of our Italian-American ethnic heritage, but it didn't reflect sort of what we believed or or the way that we you know, attempted to to live our life. But it was just, mm. sort of, you know, part of growing up in, in the family that I did. And uh, I was probably just confused about God, I think, growing up. I, mean, I remember at Christmas one time, we used to leave letters for uh, Santa in the chimney. Uh, Father Christmas, sorry, Ruth. In the <laughs> chimney to be to be whisked away. And uh, and I one time wrote on a paper plate, uh, Dear Santa and God, was God ever born? Wow. And, and I put deep, it in the chimney. It? Yeah, like, you know, I was a little kid. I, I mean, I, could, I had just learned cursive. So I don't know, I was six, seven years old. Um, and so I was asking deep questions already at a young age. Uh, but, you know, to me, I think it was interesting. Like Santa and God were very closely related, you know, sort of, uh, you know, maybe looking, maybe there, maybe looking at you to see if you're doing good or you're doing evil, not really connected to your day-to-day life, kind of stop by once a year, not stay long enough to say hi, um, you know, that. That sort of thing, and that, but it's interesting, you know. Now I look back, and you know, there are some experiences. I'll just share one more that just jumps to mind. I was in high school, and again, at this point, not not a believer. Um, I remember falling asleep at the wheel and uh, crashing into the back of the car in front of me at a stoplight, and uh, got out of the car. And the guy said, "I guess we should exchange, you know, insurance." I went back to the car to get my insurance. Uh, and then I walked up to him again and he just looked me like right in the eye and he said, you know what? He said, my family is going through a really tough time. How about you just agree to pray for us and we'll just leave it at that. Wow. And, you know, and now I look back. So now I look back as a Christian and I think, boy, God was involved in some of the experiences of my life. I mean, even I thought so much about that experience. Here's somebody I had made the mistake. There was a cost to the mistake. He had the right to decide, you know what, I'm going to take this cost myself and instead invite this stranger into some sort of relationship with my family by praying for us instead. I mean, there's so much gospel in that experience. At the time, I would have, you know, had no language to understand that. 
but I do remember it having a deep impact on me. I remember the emotion of it, you know, as I was driving away. So there were these moments throughout where God was making me ask deep questions, having interactions with people that I couldn't really understand at the time. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't a Christian you know upbringing, and it wasn't until college that really I took those questions seriously. Yeah, and so in college, I mean, obviously you'd been thinking about these deep questions since you were like five or six, but you decided to kind of study those deep questions by doing philosophy. Was that a conscious decision? You studying philosophy? It's an interesting question because I had never taken a philosophy course in high school. We just didn't have them. But somehow I went to college knowing that's what I wanted to study. And I think, like you said, I think it's because I was asking questions like you know, dear Santa and God, was God ever born at a very young age? So I sort of knew my mind worked that way, but I didn't know why. Now, again, I look back and I think, huh, like how gracious of God that he was actually setting me on a trajectory towards what I'm called to before I even knew him or knew how, you know, any of that would play out. And college was obviously really significant. That was where you sort of traveled from skeptic to Christian. Was that a long sort of convoluted journey? Was there a particular moment? Was there a reason it all happened? And there was about nine months that were very intentional. Uh, I, right at the start, when I arrived in college, uh, two of my soccer teammates, football teammates. Football, uh, uh-huh. let's just translate. Sorry, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> we understand. <laughs> two, two, of, two of my footy teammates. And, mm-hmm. uh, and they invited me to a meeting of Athletes in Action, uh, which was a, a Christian ministry um, geared towards the athletic community. I mean, at the time, I had no idea what I was invited to. I just knew it had athlete in the title, and two of my teammates had invited me, so I thought, I'll go along. I remember walking in. We were a few minutes late, and I saw these peers of mine singing their hearts out to this invisible God. And I just remember in the moment just thinking this is what, just experientially, I just knew whatever these people meant by Christian faith was very different from what my family meant. We're Italian-Americans from the New York area and therefore were sort of culturally ingrained into this, into this worldview. Uh, and then, you know, I even started to listen to the lyrics and I think it was really arresting to me, because at that point, I think my worldview was really that life was about being better than other people. Life was like one big competition, you know, and um, and I just needed to try to be the best. And here were these peers of mine at Princeton who were high achievers, and they're singing their hearts out to this invisible God precisely because he's so much better than them. And they're giving him praise for that. And I, I remember walking away from that, just feeling just real dissonance. Um, and I did begin to pray sort of agnostics prayer to say, God, I don't know if I'm talking to anyone, uh, but if I am, I'd like to know about it. And I I journeyed with those teammates and then some people in that community over about nine months of asking a lot of hard questions, looking into things, studying, researching, uh, eventually wound up on my knees in my dorm room, uh, 122 Jolene Hall, about nine months later, where I really gave my life over to Jesus. You're listening to Unapologetic from Premier Unbelievable. One of the things your teammates did along the way was challenge you to read the Bible, right? They did. And I'm I'm so glad, you know, I think, and looking back, I think they had this confidence that God's words were going to speak to me more powerfully than their words. And that was just such a good, faithful decision um, by them. Uh, You know, I mean, I started out, I, I was you know, I was just so confident that 
you know, I, I knew the truth about everything. And, um, so I you know, started reading through and I would actually cross things out, add things. Um, I'd write a big BS in the margins, you know, wherever I disagreed, um, not for Bible study, <laughs> you know, <laughs> sadly. Uh, but I give, I give those teammates and that community a lot of credit because, it, you know, it would have been so easy to just in a sense, get frustrated with me or dismiss me. This guy doesn't have a chance, you know, but they, they welcomed my questions. They didn't feel threatened by my questions. I mean, in some ways, you know, the whole posture that Justin and, you know, has kind of established on Unbelievable, I feel like for me really resonates with the community in which I came to faith because I was able to ask all my hard questions, get a fair hearing on multiple sides and then be in position to make a, a good decision. And do you feel like there was a particular argument or something that like really drew you in or compelled you? Or was it just a kind of cumulative thing of them answering your questions, the Bible speaking to you? Like, Was there one particular thing, would you say? Yeah, probably at both ends. There were a lot of different elements that were coming together, getting to know this community, uh, got doing work in my own heart. Uh, but certainly one of the primary ones was thinking about the resurrection um, of Jesus and thinking about that historically and and coming to the conclusion that we can have real historical confidence that very shortly after Jesus clearly was killed, there were many people who were walking around utterly convinced that they were spending time with him. Uh, and that just raised the question for me, how do you explain that? Um, it's like there's a a huge historical hole uh, where you have what should have been the movement ending death of Jesus, and then all of a sudden you have the eruption of Christianity because these people are utterly convinced, so convinced they're willing to give their lives for it, that Jesus is walking around with them. Every person, I believe, has to fill that historical hole with something. Christians bridge that gap with the resurrection and the more I looked into it, the more I came to the conclusion that that was the only plausible historical way to to bridge that gap. And obviously you were within the philosophy department at Princeton, but you did sort of ask for some meetings with some of the theology faculty, didn't you, to kind of check that your this faith that you were beginning to explore was kind of academically rigorous. Would you just say a bit about that, Vince? Yes, and some of this was before I confessed. Some of it was after I came to faith, um, but but still, it was important to me for that my faith to continue to seek understanding and to continue to uh, to be fortified. Uh, but but I I did. I I remember at one point feeling like, okay, Christians have this explanation, but surely when I go to you know educated people who actually work in the area of expertise, they're going to have alternative ex- explanations as well. And I, I did have two experiences where I spoke with uh, professors and um, and specifically laid out what I just laid out to you. How do we explain this historical hole if not with the resurrection? And one of the uh, professors sort of glanced in the direction of a mass hallucination theory, um, but without conviction um, about it. And it's a, it's a theory that has a lot of problems uh, with it. You know, people don't. Um, see the same hallucination any any more than you and I dream the same dream, uh, you know. Let alone the historical evidence, you know, within the New Testament. It's not just one mass hallucination. It's all these different appearances over a period of weeks, uh, both in uh, to individuals and to groups, and in different geographical locations. You can't account for that evidence with just a mass hallucination. 
And then the other professor, uh, who's a historian, um, told me that as a historian, uh, he simply wasn't interested in the question. And there, there, there seemed to be, yeah, this assumption that once you begin talking about the miraculous, you're, you're simply on principle, no longer talking about history. But I've, I've never been able to understand why he felt you could make that assumption at the outset rather than following the evidence wherever it led. And one of the things I, I felt I learned through those interactions was that criticism without alternatives is empty. And that's a phrase that's become important to me in a lot of my thinking and a lot of my research since. Um, oftentimes we just want to criticize something, but if we don't put an alternative explanation in its place, the criticism doesn't actually hold much much weight. Uh, and I never felt more confident in the conclusions I'd come to than when I actually began to ask people who disagreed with me for their alternative explanations. So I guess in in that perspective, uh, like a lot of your journey was quite kind of academic head thing, but it clearly was also a heart decision, and it and it you know it was a, a life change thing, and it and it wasn't just an academic thing. So d- did you see a kind of change in your life? Do you think from when you became a Christian, did your life begin to look a little bit different than it did before? Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. Uh, I think it's in a slightly different context, but but G.K. Chesterton. One said, "There's there's two different ways to um, see if a coat fits you. Uh, you can you can check all the dimensions, you know, the length of the arm and the size and everything, um, or you can try it on. <laughs> um, and for me, both were important. Uh, if I didn't have this opportunity to look at the dimensions, in a sense, of the Christian faith, to look at it from a historical perspective and a scientific perspective and a philosophical perspective, I, I'm not sure that I ever would have picked the coat up. Uh, but there was certainly a point where." intellectual obstacles had been moved out of the way. I think that allowed God to speak more you know, directly to my heart. And then there was this sense of saying, okay, like I want to actually try on on the coat. I want to begin to live with Christ um, and, and experience that as something more than just a theoretical um, abstraction. Uh, and in terms of how my, my life changed, uh, yes, uh, absolutely. Uh, and in very significant ways. Now, sometimes I think Oftentimes, when someone becomes a Christian, there's one or two ways that God brings sort of drastic change, uh, almost as a sort of confirmation of his presence in the person's life. Uh, and then, of course, there's like a whole lifetime of trying imperfectly to to live out uh, the Christian the Christian life. But, you know, for me, one of the things that was true as a non-Christian was that I would never ask for forgiveness. I would never admit that I was wrong. Um, you know, my own pride... And my cultural kind of upbringing, we didn't really do forgiveness, you know, as a family. Um, I'd say if two people, uh, you know, in the extended family offended each other, they just didn't talk until nobody could remember why they were fighting in the first place, you know, (laughs) and then then one one would show up on the other's door with a tomato plant. (laughs) I don't know. It's like an Italian thing. It's always a tomato plant, you know, and then they would just hug it out and like, okay, now now we can move on. But there would never be any actual admission or wrong, or I hurt you, and, and will you forgive me? Within a couple of days, I think it was maybe the second or the third morning after I had made this commitment, you know, to Jesus, I woke up in the morning and I just had this flood of um, conviction about ways that I had hurt people in my life. All situations where I previously had rationalized why I was right, the other person was wrong, and you know, I didn't have anything, you know, to own there. And now I had this sort of flood of conviction, and it was hopeful, though. It wasn't condemnation, but it was, it was conviction that actually almost the freedom to be honest about those things 
And I can remember just sitting down at a table and feeling this compulsion to write to those people. And I just wrote, you know, letter after letter um, to people whom I had hurt, you know, asking for forgiveness and then had a chance to send those letters off and and have some wonderful reconciliation um, as a result. But it's just this beautiful experience where on the one hand, I knew, you know, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit coming to dwell within you and, and work through you. And on the one hand, I knew that wasn't me. Uh, because I don't ask for forgiveness, and I never did. And yet at the same time, I never felt more fully like myself than when I was feeling the freedom to be able to be honest about those things and, and send off those those letters. So lots to say, but that's one thing that comes to mind in terms of where I saw this clear shift um, when God's presence was in my life. Vince, we're going to um, talk in another podcast about kind of your journey into apologetics and how you ended up at Oxford and all of that. But just as we finish this podcast, you shared a little bit of a story on the recent Unbelievable that we did where there was a lady who you kind of met who used to live on your corridor. Would you just share a little bit about that as, as we end this podcast? Oh, yeah, that was so fun. Uh, so I was speaking somewhere and uh, a, a woman came up to me after after I was done speaking, I had talked about my testimony. And I don't normally mention the detail that I gave my life to Jesus in 122 Jolene Hall, which was my dorm room. Uh, she came forward. I had mentioned that detail and she walked forward and I could see she was emotional. She had like, tears in her eyes and she looked like really moved. And she said, did you say 122 Jolene Hall? And I said, yes. And she said, well, I'm about 15 years older than you. Uh, but I went to Princeton as well, and I lived in 121 Jolene Hall, just next door. She said, and I spent my four years in college praying for the salvation of the guys in 122 Jolene Hall. And since she said, all of these years, I felt like God didn't hear that prayer. But as I was hearing you speak and telling your story, I realized that God, not in the way maybe I had envisioned it, but God had literally answered my prayer word for word for the salvation of the guys in 122 Jolene Hall. And then for me, that was such an impactful moment to think 15 years before I ever even thought to turn my attention toward God. He had a woman next to the dorm room that I would actually drop to my knees and give my life to him praying for that very space. Vince, thank you so much. That feels like such a great way to end this podcast. That's all we've got time for today, but we will be hearing much more about your story in a later show. So thank you so much, Vince. Thank you for joining us on Unapologetic with me, Ruth Jackson. As always, you can find out more about our guests through the links with today's show. And please do let us know what you thought of the programme by emailing unbelievable at premier.org.uk or you can get in touch with us on social media. Thank you for listening and see you next week. You've been listening to Unapologetic. For more shows, resources and our newsletter, visit premierunbelievable.com.